American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. At the beginning of the summer of 1787, representatives from most of the newly independent 13 states of the United States gather in Philadelphia, go into a building called Independence Hall, and they don't come out again for a couple of months. When they come out, they bring a document which is called the Constitution. They then submit uh, the Constitution to the different states who then submit the document in turn to their citizens for ratification. By 1789, enough of the states have ratified the Constitution that it is declared the law of the land. And a new form of federal government is organized on that basis. The Constitution, with amendments, has remained in place for well over 200 years since that time. And many people would credit, with, credit the Constitution with being the political document that has created the United States as we know it. But it's also an economic document. If the Constitution is full of political compromises, and many people know what some of them are, there's a compromise between big states and small states, between people who wanted a strong central government and people who wanted a weak central government with more of the powers devolved to the states. And we could go on along those lines. But if it's a political compromise or a set of political compromises, it's also a set of economic compromises. And those economic compromises create the economic United States, a nation in which a new kind of capitalism would begin to emerge over the next few decades. And so it's important to look at those compromises because they set the stage for that emergence. The Constitution incorporates three major areas of compromise about economics. And you can see the tracks of those economic compromises all over the document. The first one that I'd w I want to look at is slavery. Now, in 1787, 20% of the American population is enslaved. And there are big disagreements among the delegates to the Constitutional Convention about whether or not those enslaved people are going to be counted as property or as people within the Constitution, as property or as citizens is perhaps a better way to put it. Ultimately, they, they compromise uh, in this way. They decide that they're going to call uh, each slave three-fifths of a person for purposes of representation or taxation. And this is just a pure compromise between the northern and the southern states. The southern states want slaves to be counted as people for representation, but they don't want them to be taxed heavily. But there are other pieces of compromise about slavery within the Constitution, and these are also important. For instance, the international slave trade, which some delegates want to ban, and they want to ban it, as they say, on grounds of uh, human humanitarian concern about the slave trade. Uh, we know that something like 15 or 20 percent of the enslaved people who were put on the ships in Africa do not survive the trip across the ocean. And that was well known. It's a deadly process, even leaving aside the killing that happened in Africa in the process of the slave trade. So the slave trade is a moral issue, but it's also an economic issue. And all regions of the United States had an economic interest in the slave trade. 
and the compromise that they make reflects that economic interest. Likewise, another area of compromise about slavery was over the question of returning fugitive slaves to their owners, especially if those individuals who were trying to escape from slavery had crossed state lines, perhaps into a state where slavery had been banned, as it was banned by 1787 in Massachusetts, for instance. The Fugitive Slave Clause, which is incorporated in the Constitution, commands those states to return the escaped slaves to their owners. And thus, it implies a recognition of slaves as property. It implies that some states may say, people cannot be property within our boundaries, but it also implies that they cannot overrule the property laws of other states which say that slaves, in fact, can be property in those states. The consequence of all these compromises over slavery is that slavery can not only continue to exist in the United States as an economic institution after 1787, but that it can thrive and expand. And a significant part of U.S. economic growth after 1787 would be based on the expansion of that institution of slavery. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to Facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm-hmm.